This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk! Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izex. Hi! And this week we have the start. This is the start of what everyone remembers as good Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> I swear if they had not improved things with this movie, one, it, they would have never made any more because the first movie was not a box office success. It was pretty to look at. But yeah, it's not something people wanted to watch. But also this style kind of codified most of the future movies, though there's some debate on how good they got. Yeah, they, they varied a bit. <laughs> and it also really informed everything that they did in like Star Trek Next Generation and all of the subsequent series in the 80s and 90s. Oh, most certainly. There's uh, a lot of uh, vibes here that you can sort of see going forward. So this is, of course, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Wait a moment, Khan, we've run into him before. We have, which would be really confusing if you hadn't watched all of the original series. Yes. <laughs> or at least that episode. They do not do a particularly good job of explaining Khan. Yeah, they do technically give a quick rundown of why he's important and what Kirk did to him, but it's sort of a you blink you miss it sort of thing so yeah and they barely go into like he's a genetically enhanced super soldier who took over most of earth yes <laughs> you know he mentions being a prince but uh you know doesn't quite describe what that meant so you get that interesting um sci-fi problem where when they wrote space seed in 67 the 1990s seemed like a long way off yes <laughs> then they have this written uh, released in 84 when the 1990s eugenics war was not that far away yeah so it's like um so well this is gonna be uh just kind of around the corner here uh also it was uh 82 not 84 there we go oh yeah search for spock i'm looking at the wrong thingy <laughs> <laughs> pretty <Previous> movie <laughs> so overall it's nice to see the character back, but it is a little weird. Like, it's it's a weird one to have a movie that so explicitly needed you to be watching the show. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I, you know, there's a few things I want to say about that, uh, you know, later. But uh, it is still sort of a, you know, it, it was pretty much set up to not work because of that. Mm -hmm. But yet it still did. <laughs> so this was uh, written by... Harv Bennett, who's a well-known writer and producer for Star Trek. He worked on other projects like Mod Squad, Six Million Dollar Man, other TV shows of the era. There's a lot of TV show people in this movie. Yeah. And uh, Jack B. Swords, who wrote for well-known TV series like Bonanza and T.J. Hooker. Bonanza? Yeah, we have a lot of, like, everything that we've heard of from the show. It's a very TV movie. I mean, you can kind of tell. <laughs> the look of it is a lot more TV-ish than the previous movie. Yeah, this, uh, you know, there's a lot more, I, I guess, hanging out with people and less panoramic shots of space. Yeah, but speaking of, like, because TV people and people who know how to get things in on time and under budget, which is what they needed for this sequel that was mm -hmm. not getting funded because the first movie did not bring in a lot of box office, you have Nicholas Meyer, who directed and did a lot of uncredited rewrites on the script. Uh, he previously, his previous uh, film 
work was Time After Time, which I, I so need to see. Yes. <laughs> sort of uh, keeps cropping up here. Uh. It does. It's a movie about H.G. Wells traveling forward to the 1970s chasing Jack the Ripper. I think we've mentioned this before, actually. So. Yeah. Uh, he also was well known for a TV movie called The Day After, which depicts the aftermath of a nuclear war. Yes, I've seen parts of that, and uh, I guess I've seen more of a review of it than the actual uh, material there. But yes, it's a you know an event that was sort of like, you know, people talk about, you know, dropping the bomb here, but... Uh, what would that actually mean for everyone, and how much would it actually suck? Well, let us show you. A lot, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. So uh, society has collapsed. Uh, a lot of people are dead. There's a lot of people with radiation poisoning and things like that. And uh, everyone's really hungry. So this sucks. We're into this period of movies where we start getting more than two guest stars. So uh, Christy Alley as Savick. This is her first ever film appearance, introducing Christy Alley as Savick. Uh, she'll go on to do a bunch of other things, uh, uh, you know, including, I, I believe, that was a, this long-running show called Cheers, I think it was. Yep. Best known for her role on Cheers and something that I've never seen called Veronica's Closet. I, I'm guessing it's different than Veronica Mars, then. Probably. I mean, I've heard of it. I've just never <laughs> seen it. Uh, wasn't she in also Look Who's Talking? I think so. I can't remember. I've, I saw that movie so long ago. Yes. <laughs> Made some waves recently due to uh, her uh, political positions and uh, support of a uh, former president, but mm. uh, we're not going to go too much more into that. Yeah. Uh, we also have Paul Winfield as Captain Clark Terrell. Uh, he had a long-running film and television career uh, with appearances in Perry Mason and Man from Uncle, including a lot of other shows I've never heard of, including one called Cowboy in Africa, which uh, I just had to look up it's exactly what it sounds like oh my hmm. mm -hmm. uh he was also in uh the fbi no oh, we got another <laughs> <laughs> uh he's also on uh, babylon 5 as the uh general uh, father of dr F franklin Ooh. um in the episode gropos they also had an academy award nomination for starring in the film sounder and an emmy nomination for playing dr martin luther king jr and he was also a side character in Terminator. I don't think he got an Emmy nomination for that one. Uh, he was also in White Dwarf. Not Red Dwarf, White Dwarf. Yeah, he's been around. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, Bobby Beesh. I should have listened to how this name was pronounced. Besh. Besh. <laughs> I apologize to people with names generally for my pronunciations. Yeah, so people have names, you'll mispronounce them. Don't worry yeah, about it. I will. <laughs> As uh, Dr. Carol Marcus uh, began her acting career in soap operas, she was also a guest on a lot of shows like Murder, She Wrote, Golden Girls, things of that time period, and has several movie credits like The Day After and Steel More Magnolias. Oh yeah, it's and good show. Tremors. Good oh yeah, she was uh, like the the like the doctor's wife or something like that. I think I actually have not seen Tremors. I need to. Yeah, fix those, that at some point. <laughs> it's one of those things I need to have seen. So I'll be, I'll add it to my list then. <laughs> Then, of course, uh, Ricardo Maltaban is returning as Khan. Well, well-known actor at this point. Uh, basically a household name because he'd been starring in Fantasy Island for many years. So uh, let's, go, let's do some Star Trek, then Fantasy Island forever, and then more Star Trek. Yeah, he was actually famous enough he was considering not taking this role. Yeah, <laughs> it's like... Uh, <laughs> 
I guess I could. I will say there there was an interview I saw with him talking about this movie that I just loved. He's like, after playing, uh, what was it, Mr. Burke on Fantasy Island. Not that Khan was a bad character, but I want to have an important character. And I was reading the script. And when I'm not on screen, they're talking about me. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're kind of, you know, pervasive throughout the entire uh, movie here. So mm-hmm. it, it is very much about you. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, I, I recall uh, reading a bit about uh, he was having some trouble getting back into character. So he's like, can I just rewatch that old episode, please? Uh, <laughs> help me out. I've been doing, you know, doing the same role here for so long. You know, you know, it's sort of become everything that I'm good at as far as acting. <laughs> so, all right, I'm back in character. Good. All right. <laughs> and finally, uh, Merritt Bertrick as Dr. David Marcus, who was known for several TV parts. Uh, landed his role in the sitcom Square Pegs, which I've not Never heard of, but seems like it's it's like a quintessential sort of '80s teen drama show. Oh. Later that same, <laughs> later this year, actually after the after the movie, uh, he, had, yeah. he had a very short-lived career, unfortunately, because he died of complications related to AIDS in 1989. Yeah, that's not very good. No, reportedly may have been. A uh, bisexual actor who couldn't be out at the time, which is very sad. So George Takei says he may have met up with him in gay bars during filming. Yeah, had a connection. Gotta hang out. It's so sad. There's so many people in these things who like just couldn't be out because mm-hmm. it was the frickin' '80s. By this time, it's the '80s. We should have learned. But uh, you know, Reagan's like, no, we're we gotta punish those homosexuals. Oh yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, fuck that him. guy. Try not to curse too much, but no, we do not invoke Reagan's name and not just say, fuck that guy. He was terrible. I don't care if you want to comment he was the greatest president on earth. You will get blocked. Yes. <laughs> I'm 100% behind that for yes. <laughs> okay, let's get into this stupid Reagan era shit. <laughs> so the Enterprise, now with Captain Savick, a young Vulcan woman, is on a training mission near the Klingon neutral zone. Uh, this Which is, is new, new. But, you know, yeah. Where they receive a distress call from the cargo ship Kobayashi Maru has been struck by a mine in the neutral zone, which no one knows why they were there. They just are stranded now. Well, you know, if you're going to get, you know, stranded somewhere inconvenient, I guess the neutral zone is the place to be stranded conveniently. So Sevek orders them to violate the neutral zone and attempt to save the crew. This, unfortunately, was a trap. Three Klingon ships appear and begin firing on the Enterprise before they can react. Main power and weapons are out. Most of the crew is dead, and Sevek orders them to abandon ship when the view screen slides aside to reveal Admiral Kirk, who has been working with Spock at Starfleet Academy. So, uh, you know, Yahura, you know, know, uh, Sulu, Spock himself, all being horribly killed here, that was all all fake? Yep. Oh, well. They're all training a new crew for the Enterprise, and this was uh, one of their training missions, which Savick is very upset about. The test was unfair with no way to win, but Kirk points out that it's important to see how a commander will respond to a no-win situation. Indeed. I mean, is it, though? <laughs> it's like, wait a moment. You could have just not gone into the neutral zone. No, yeah, like, I see the point. <laughs> like, we want to see how you respond in, like, a high-pressure, no-win situation. But, like, at that point, it doesn't really matter how you respond, does it? Well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> You're all dead no matter what you do. Yes. <laughs> did you go down with honor, or did you run around in a blind panic? It doesn't really change the situation. Or as uh, Chekhov's solution was, uh, for, I think in one of the books, 
you know, did did you get everyone killed in a just a more complicated way? <laughs> <laughs> I do actually kind of like a thing I heard that in one of the later, later books, they describe how Nog from Deep Space Nine passed this test by negotiating with the Klingons for money. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I've heard a few uh, other uh, sort of takes on it, uh, when it was, but um, someone apparently, you know, a different version of it with the Romulans instead, you know, someone challenged the Romulans to a uh, old style, you know, this is a rule that all you guys are supposed to follow sort of thing of personal combat and such. And people running simulators like we didn't program that in <laughs> so after this disastrous test that was supposed to be disastrous kirk and spock hang out for a bit it's kirk's birthday and spock's giving him an old book but uh, spock cool. has to eventually head up to the enterprise to prepare for admiral kirk's inspection well uh you know what, what kind of book is it uh, this is the best of times it was the blurst of times hey spock <laughs> this antiques counterfeit so Kirk heads home, which is an interestingly furnished apartment with some random pistols and ship models and things. Yeah, he's apparently taken to collecting antiques as he's gotten older. Huh. Yeah, it's a little, little on the nose, as far as your metaphors go. Are you saying that Kirk is turning into an antique? No, McCoy says he's turning into an antique in the next scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> so McCoy starts by with Romulan ale. This is like the first time we get the Romulan ale thingy. Yes. <laughs> it's pointed out that it's illegal too, so. And a pair of reading glasses for Kirk's super low-key birthday party that he's super depressed about, apparently. Well, when you turn, uh, how old's he supposed to be here? Forget. 50-something? Probably. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, not there myself yet, but... Uh... I do do fear that point, the half-century I mean, we're all going to do it eventually. It's better than not being there. True. But, uh, you know, is that the point where I can turn into a robot? Maybe. Cool. So McCoy's upset that Kirk's depressed and reminds him that he needs to get his command back because he's just depressed and sad. So just stop it, Kirk. You're depressing all your friends. You know, Kirk, you, you previously got the Enterprise back, you know. Yeah, there, there, I think between the motion picture and now, there was like another five-year mission or something mm -hmm. like that right, where you might have been in charge of it, too. So why don't you just pull that sort of stuff again? Get another you know, crazy alien to come and attack the Earth. We haven't quite gotten here yet, but this is essentially the plot of every original series movie. I agree. <laughs> Kirk needs to get his command back. <laughs> I don't want to give it up yet. One more adventure, please. Come Including on. Including... The first of the next-gen movies. <laughs> I'm on the Enterprise B. Uh, everyone's incompetent. I'm in charge now. <laughs> Elsewhere, the Starship Reliant, where Chekhov is serving under Captain Terrell, is surveying planets looking for apparently a completely dead world that would be suitable for testing something called Genesis. So uh, let's go like hang out by Pluto or something like that. Right? Yeah, you'd think they'd have these. But. Yes. Uh, apparently life is so common in the galaxy that it's almost impossible to find something that doesn't even have microorganisms on it. That's kind of surprising, but I guess it kind of makes sense with Star Trek and all it that. It makes sense when every other star system you go to has sentient humanoid life forms suggesting that every planet must have something if you've got this much convergent evolution. Yes. <laughs> Like, 90% of everybody is some sort of humanoid, uh, and there's just so many of them that it's, like, ridiculous. So, yeah, everything has life on it, I guess. So they found a promising candidate, SETI Alpha 6, except there's a little probably nothing could just be dirt in the sensor's blip on the scanner. Well, I guess we should probably check it out to make sure. Terrell and Chekhov decide to head down to the planet, see if 
things can be, you know, moved or maybe it doesn't exist. They arrive on a barren, windswept rock where nothing could live. Basically nothing at all. Except for whatever's in all those cargo containers over there. Oh, wait, it's just some crashed assholes. Uh, I guess we could just move them and it's be fine. So it's not native life. Then inside, they find uh, signs of human habitation. And Chekhov glances at the name on some equipment, identifying the containers as belonging to the ship Botany Bay. <gasps> oh no! Fan service! Panicked, Chekhov tries to leave with the captain immediately when they step outside and are surrounded by robed figures. Hmm. It is kind of funny seeing this as such a major plot point in things when today, every ship in the background of anything would have a name you recognize from before. Just so you can go like, ah, I see it. <laughs> now, I will say that the uh, stepping out and seeing those figures there in the, in the uh, dust storm and all that, it is kind of like super eerie. So I give them points on that. So back inside, Chekhov and Terrell are now prisoners. Uh, the leader of the band reveals himself to be Khan, as previously seen in Space Seed. And there's also Khan's chest. Yes. Yes. Khan's magnificent chest. Yeah, you have to be, be certain for folks, that was not fake. He actually was that ripped, so... <laughs> mm -hmm. This is one of those, like, things where in comic books you'd have a little asterisk down at the bottom that says, as seen in episode 22. Yes. <laughs> Check it out. Khan is quite upset to see Chekhov because he and his people were mooned here by Kirk and never checked on. Well, it's only been a couple decades, right? Well, I guess about 15 years, so yeah. Uh, if they had checked on them, they'd know that this is not SETI Alpha 6, the dead world, but SETI Alpha 5, the once lush planet, locked out of its orbit by SETI Alpha 6 exploding. Well, that's terrible. Hmm. They somehow missed that there's one less planet in this system than there should be. Now, I did think about this, and, you know, sometimes maybe they just lose track of a planet, whatever, but so... They, they think it's SETI Alpha 6, but it was SETI Alpha 5. So that means that if there one more, that would imply that there's now a new SETI Alpha 5 of some sort. So maybe that was SETI Alpha 7 was thrown inward and this planet got knocked outward. And I don't know. Mm, yeah, what now? <laughs> I, I guess don't worry too much about it. Khan's here and he's going to lift Chekhov off, uh, off the ground with one arm. Yep, through the very convenient little handle on the front of his spacesuit. Yes. <laughs> Khan sees an opportunity to escape and find Kirk. So he reveals his pet, an antlion-looking thing, that's killed 20 of his people after they arrived, including his wife from the last episode. That's why she's not around. So... Plus, you know, the real life stuff that she had, I think is uh, multiple sclerosis or something like that. Oof, yeah. yeah. The uh, young of this thing wrap themselves around your brain and leave you incredibly suggestible. Well, uh, hopefully for Cod, that's only people that are him can suggest them. Yeah, one would hope. Yeah. <laughs> this seems to work somehow. I'm not sure why. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, they, they get their helmets and they're like, you know, plop, plop. All right, put the helmets on and uh, let's see what happens. So Khan shoves them in and they both just scream for bed. Back on Earth, Kirk arrives to inspect the Enterprise. Uh, Spock and his training crew are all there, all lined up in a hallway. There aren't very many people on this ship. Well, these are probably the most important people. Uh, Kirk does a bare minimum of looking around and decides that they should take the ship out on a quick training cruise. All right. Um, now, now I don't know what version uh, you saw specifically, but I happened to watch the director's cut, which I think had a little bit more of the wandering around and talking to people. And we uh, happened to meet a a young uh, cadet named uh, Preston during all this. He's going places, I think. Oh, great. <laughs> 
I'll be in the next series and long career. Well, we'll get to him later. <laughs> uh, Savik is given command to take the ship out of dry dock. Uh, Spock makes like a big deal about this. Like, have you ever piloted a ship out of space dock? And she goes, no. And then sits down and goes, Sulu, get the ship out of space dock. Okay, Captain. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I I think this is partially like, you know, Spock showing uh, his sort of mentor role for Savik here. Um, but it also unfortunately sets up some, uh, a really kind of awkward scene in uh, TNG in the first episode. So, you know, <laughs> some good, some bad. <laughs> so they get out of space dock and they're on their way to more random directions. Kirk loves just going like, I don't know, go wherever. <laughs> uh, take us to space. But we're in space. More space. Okay. <laughs> on the regular one research station, we meet doctors David and Carol Marcus who are finishing up work on their Genesis project when they receive a transmission from the Reliant. It's Chekhov telling them that SETI Alpha 6 is checked out and they're now coming to take Genesis and test it themselves by order of Admiral Kirk. This is not great because they were supposed to not do this and they were supposed to have another six months or so to finish this thing. And why is the military seizing their research? Yeah, this is a civilian operation. Like, you know, Starfleet was supposed to be just helping us out with this whole survey business here. You know, this is... This is not in your purview. We can't let them take it, take it, uh, Mom. Uh, let's go and like start planning things. This enrages David, who says that the military just wants it because they see everything as a weapon. We'll get to. Uh, yeah, we'll get to, get to more of that later. On the Enterprise, Savick's trying to get Kirk to tell her how he approached the no-win Kobayashi Maru test, but he will not share. No, 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 no. Yes, uh, he's being real cagey here. They're also interrupted by a call from Carol Marcus, who apparently Kirk used to date. Uh, there's some uh, sort of uh, exchanges with you know McCoy there. He's like, hmm, yeah, don't w- w- watch out for opening old wounds. You know, I'm a doctor and all that. First, he creepily infers that Savick's into Kirk, which is a bit, eh. Unless she's, I mean, she is a Vulcan. She could be a lot older than she looks, but still. She could be 90, yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, and Carol Marcus. Oh, oh, oh. Well, uh, I might be McCoy, the, the second biggest player on the ship, but uh, can't, can't stand in the way of Kirk here. Yeah, so, but again, told him to be careful. Marcus wants to know why Kirk ordered to take Genesis away from her. He, of course, has no idea what she's talking about, but can't really communicate because the transmission is being jammed. From the source, in fact. Since Regula is a Starfleet research lab, and by the insane coincidence that the Enterprise is always the only ship in the area. <laughs> yes. They only ever have one ship near Earth at a time, don't they? Apparently, you know, uh, the rest of the ships are on five-year missions or on the border or you know exploded or lost or whatever uh also they only have like 12 ships total i guess so you know <laughs> so being the only ship in the area they're sent to investigate uh despite being manned mostly by students yeah uh, well, we find that they've done all the simulator time right spock gives over his command to kirk for the duration of the emergency they do a cute back and forth they're like no 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 you take you keep it and spock's like i don't That's have an you. ego captain it's like oh <laughs> right <laughs> oh yeah you're still a vulcan all right so so Kirk gets his command back and gives the senior crew an overview of what it is they're going to investigate. Uh, Genesis is explained by Carol's research proposal video, the first fully computer animated effect in movie history. Dun dun dun! And it's actually pretty neat. 
Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. I got, uh, you know, this dead planet being sort of sparkly with energy stuff. And then slowly water starts forming on the surface and starts turning more green. And some of the mountains have like snow on them and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, made by the team at uh, LucasArts that later became Pixar. Yeah. All come together, man. So basically, Genesis is a super advanced terraforming thingy. Uh, you deploy it on a lifeless world, it starts a cascade effect, which reorganizes all the matter on the planet, leaving behind a matrix to support life. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it, it makes a life supporting planet. Well, uh, if you remember from the movie The Matrix, uh, there. Wait, never mind. That's way later and. Uh, yes. <laughs> more gay <Yes. laughs> so mccoy is not pleased because he's like oh my god they could use this as a weapon okay yes. yep you could use a pencil as a weapon too mccoy what's your point so there's a bit of exchange with spock being like you know yeah th- i'm not really making a value judgment about what this thing is and mccoy is like but you could use this on a planet where there's already people there and that could kill everybody and you're like yeah so could lots of things yes <laughs> it is i guess sort of a uh case of uh uh, a weapon of mass destruction in Star Trek that's, you know, one and done as opposed to, you know, bombarding things with photon tarbe- uh, photon photon torpedoes or something like that. I and mean, it does have the significant advantage of leaving a, like, fun new farm planet instead of a lifeless wasteland. Yes. Or um, a, a different farm, fun farm planet as opposed to the one you had before with all your enemies on it. So before they can finish this debate, they're approached by the Starship Reliant. Uh, there's this... Oh about how they're not communicating like wait a moment we're not the only ship in the area this is this is suspicious <laughs> yeah also the reliance not supposed to be here because um there's but because it's a star's fleet ship they don't really take any precautions khan of course who's in command of the reliant uh used the genesis to lure kirk here takes this opportunity to fire on the enterprise while their shields are down oh no wait savage you told them kirk to raise the shields that he didn't yep. jeepers kirk <laughs> so they take out most of their main power and engines. Khan hails the Enterprise to discuss surrender because he wants Kirk to know who it was that killed him before he blows up the rest of the ship. Kirk tries to give himself up to save the crew, but Khan won't do it unless he gets all the available information on Genesis, which Kirk is not going to do because weapon thing. Yes. So uh, we have that thing we just talked about with McCoy being really concerned. And even if we might be responsible with it, Khan's certainly not going to be. So instead of giving up this information, he has Savick pull up the Reliance command codes which will let them use the computer to issue commands on the Reliance consoles. Cool. Uh, This seems like something that might come up again sometime in Star Trek. (laughs) So they transmit this and use it to lower the Reliance shields, allowing them to fire and take out the Reliance weapons and warp drive, forcing them to retreat. Now we're a little more even here, Khan. (laughs) Ho ho! Yeah, but our ship's still kind of on fire, so, you know. Yeah, the Enterprise is super badly damaged, but they do make their way to Regula, uh, leaving Spock in command as Kirk, McCoy, and Savick beam over to the station, where they find the entire crew is dead and tortured to death by Khan. Well, uh, I guess uh, we're not going to see the the Marcuses anymore, I guess. Um, Wait a moment. These bodies aren't theirs. <laughs> so they do find Chekhov and Terrell, who are alive but locked in a storage cabinet, and they head to the station's transporter, where they believe some of the crew may have escaped. Well, uh, hopefully this uh, transporter coordinates are to somewhere that's not inside solid rock. Yeah, I do like it. Like, this, this is one of the movies where they write the weird, jokey Kirk and McCoy friendship very well. Yes. <laughs> We're going to beam down to where they went. And what if they went nowhere? You're going to get away from it all. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Spock informs them of the dire news that the repairs will make hours seem like days, and it's going to take two days for them to have power. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that sucks then. Hopefully the rally doesn't uh, catch up with you that before then. So yeah, it's like in five minutes we're going to find out that he was speaking in code, but like, yes. of course he was. <laughs> so he just, he, he comes in and awkwardly goes like, if we were to go by the book, hours would seem like days. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sure. People definitely talk like that. <laughs> well, he's Vulcan, you know, and Vulcans don't lie or exaggerate ever because they said so. Uh, <laughs> so it's going to be two days before they have the power to even beam them back on board the ship. Kirk decides to head down to the moon the station is orbiting, and they arrive in a cavern full of supply crates and a big missile looking thing which is the genesis device and uh, also don't uh, don't forget to mention the people that ambushed them yeah david attacks kirk blaming him for killing the crew what did starfleet do in this kid's lifetime like david thinks that kirk murdered everyone on the station and that starfleet wants to steal their thing to use it to destroy planets well i think there might be some background here that we're just not really being shown or told or at all but uh, you know but he does. He is aware that Kirk and Carol have a history of some sort, and that it didn't necessarily end well. But she still is okay with him in some degree. And yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's like I get being leery of like, oh, they're a military operation, even though they're peacekeeping and whatever, whatever. But this whole like, oh my God, this guy tortured our crew to death. Yeah. So uh, Carol stops him because she knows Kirk wouldn't torture people to death apparently however Terrell and Chekhov would dun 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 they still have the mind slugs so uh Chekhov Terrell um so uh, are you uh, gonna betray us now aren't you yeah they call Khan in form of the Genesis device um he orders them to kill Kirk but Kirk is just too damn charismatic neither of them can bring themselves to do it <laughs> Terrell shoots himself yeah it's like I I I'm having trouble sir and then I'm gonna shoot myself bye and Chekhov uh I guess through the force of something his force of will or something forces the bug out of his brain yeah well it's it's very cold in russia so and the bug didn't like it so <laughs> his sheer inability to shoot a main character saves his life and, but uh but now he kind of becomes like just a, a set piece for uh, the next bit here yeah i mean he just had a bug crawl his way out of his brain so con beams up genesis decides that it's actually better this way because now kirk's buried alive and marooned just like he was well, um, I guess that's convenient for Khan then. Uh, so I guess Khan's gonna leave here and, uh, you know, start a reign of terror across the galaxy. Yeah, probably. That sucks. So the Reliant leaves that uh, Kirk and Co. won't starve to death because this is where they did the first Genesis experiment. And just down the hall is a massive cave filled with waterfalls and plants and what must be the universe's biggest grow light. Nice. Yeah, it's, there's like some unknown light source from over yonder and it's not clear what it is. Carol gives the revelation that david is kirk's son that she didn't tell him about because she didn't want to have a life in starfleet well i guess uh kirk uh, kirk did get uh get around it, it would make sense that uh he did have at least one son out there yeah uh this doesn't really go anywhere now but remember it for next time yes so Savak finally gets Kirk to tell her how he did do the Kobayashi Maru test. Turns out he won because yes. he reprogrammed the computer to allow him to beat the situation and got an award for original thinking 
because he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario. Speaking of which, Spock's here. Uh, hey, Spock, uh, what's up? Uh, it's been a couple hours. Uh, anything new? I, I know this. I know the movie thing. Like, I love this as a movie moment. They have a good payoff here. But just, just imagining Kirk is sitting there like, ah, I'm going to tell you this story with just enough time for Spock to beam us up. And then you'll go, ha-ha, see, he really doesn't believe in a no-win situation. Well, you know, Kirk ha- does have a, a number of odd talents and i guess dramatic timing is one of them so to savick's surprise uh all of the stuff was an exaggeration because you know vulcans don't lie so this is weird but uh savick does does curse so (laughs) Mm -hmm. but because their transmissions were being monitored they had to use code and now they've got sort of main power back online because they only had two hours to do it but they're still pretty crippled. Yeah, so uh, we might be able to limp along for a bit, but it's not going to be... Uh, but there's a nebula nearby that might even the odds if they can go fight there. Because nebulas. Nebulas are magic. Yes, yes uh, they're like big big thunderstorms. Khan sees the Enterprise leaving and gives chase. His first officer tries to stop before they go into the nebula, but Kirk is able to insult Khan into following them. Oh no, Kirk is no longer buried alive. The nebula blinds both ships and knocks out their shields, making this a very high-stakes hunt. Effectively even footing. They briefly exchange fire, both taking damage. The Enterprise engine starts leaking radiation, and the Reliant loses its first officer. The guy that was actually, like, being helpful for Khan and telling him not to do really silly things. Yeah. I mean, most of Khan's storyline in this is just Moby Dick. Yes. It's like, I want revenge! Like, to the point where he's literally quoting the book half the time. Yes. <laughs> as well as other, other works of literature that we saw that were, uh, was in the, uh, Botany Bay, uh, you know, cargo container, but most, you know, mostly Moby Dick. So his whole thing is, I am obsessed with revenge to the point that it's going to destroy me and everything I care about. Including the rest of my crew, eventually. So Smock suggests that though Khan is definitely a brilliant tactician, he is rooted in uh, 1900s thinking, which is two-dimensional, and he's not used to three-dimensional space combat. Yeah, so uh, if you're used to, you know, land combat or even air combat, uh, yeah, it's very, there's only so much room where you're going to be able to go up and down. But in space, you can go 10 kilometers that way, and that's fine. It doesn't really matter which, which way you're going. So Kirk takes the ship higher and uses this to his advantage to get behind the Reliant and take them out with Toton Torpedoes. So uh, one more nacelle that's now detached, and a lot of explosions here. And Khan, how, how's the rest of your crew doing at this point? Yeah, they're dead. Oh, hmm. Well, I guess I don't have to worry about them anymore. So despite Kirk offering to save him, Khan refuses to surrender and activates the countdown on the Genesis device. All they can do now is run because for some reason they didn't design the thing with an off switch. Yes, I guess we're doomed because we don't have warp power. Um, This sucks. Yeah, they're not going to make it because the engines are too badly damaged, so they're kind of limping away. And the only way to fix them is to go into the deadly, deadly radiation room. Well... Hopefully nobody's stupid enough to do that. Spock goes to engineering, (laughs) uh, knocks out McCoy, mind melds with him and tells him to remember. This may be set up for later. Spock then enters the radiation room and repairs the engines just in time for them to escape the Genesis blast. Actually, a really tense scene and Spock gets his big giant gloves on and, you know, I'm getting blasted the face with this weird gas stuff. And I've got to, like, adjust the dilithium crystals or something like that. But mm. got to make yeah. it work, guys. Whatever this thing is, like, it's a weird one. The repair needs to, you need to, like, turn a screw or something. But you need to do it while dying of radiation. Yes. Um, 
Maybe we should get a robot Armin. That would, that would help. That would help a lot. <laughs> this is one of those situations where in next gen, if you're like, oh no, there's too much radiation, data would just walk in and fix it. And okay. <laughs> okay, everything's fine. <laughs> you're good. I'm good. We all good. <laughs> so Kirk runs down to engineering for the best known heartbreaking scene in Star Trek history where Spock's dying of radiation and they declare their friendship through glass. You will and always will be my friend, Gepwood. The needs of one and many and whatnot. Some sort of bullshit philosophy. Today is very logical in this case. Goodbye, Kirk. (laughs) Uh, They send Spock off in a torpedo funeral with bagpipes and everything. So uh, where are we going to be sending him off to? Uh, Just deep space somewhere? Well, it turns out that Genesis went off in a nebula and created its own planet out of all the nebula gases and things. Oh, so I guess the Matrix included, Matrix included like a whole planet here. Wait, wait a moment. Are the Marcuses, are they Magrathians? It's Titan AE. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Underrated film. I enjoy it. So David comes to see Kirk, who's taking this very hard because, you know, Kirk never believed in losing. And now he's lost his friend. Uh, but, you know, even with this, David's now very proud to be his son. So Kirk's got a family. Isn't that nice? You lost a good friend. and uh, But hey, you know, Spock doesn't want to come back for the next movie. You know. But Nimoy doesn't have to, so... So Kirk heads back out to space on the Enterprise, and we see Spock's torpedo coffin resting on the forest of the Genesis planet. Hmm. Little weird, but okay. There we go. This is possibly considered by many to be the best film in the Star Trek franchise. It is definitely up there. Uh, yeah, I, I find it kind of hard to necessarily say one movie is the best, but... It is definitely a, a, a very solid film overall. Yeah, this is definitely the one that I have rewatched the most times. I think the same here, actually. <laughs> it definitely hits that it hits that Star Trek space swashbuckling thing that I tend to enjoy. Yes. Got uh, our ships are doing this thing where they're kind of back and forth a bit, and we're being clever and we're trying to outthink each other while also outfight each other. And, you know, we got various situations that allow us to, you know, maybe figure out some more information uh, or change our advantages or switch things around. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, you know, everyone's plans are coming up against each other and, you know, interesting stuff's happening. Yeah, Nicholas Meyer and Harv Bennett cited um horatio hornblower as one of their main uh story influences which was a very popular uh, series of novels about a uh, a lieutenant at first all the way up to admiral in the british navy during the napoleonic war that was very swashbuckly adventure afraid i'm uh i have not read any of that myself mm, there's a very good uh good like bbc series they did a while back maybe i'll have to look for that and uh of course gene roddenberry hated the militarization of star trek in these movies even though that's kind of what persists from this point onward yes <laughs> you know in tng the you know the, especially in the early season when you know roddenberry was still very much you know uh, involved you know they there was definitely a move away from the militarism you know the, you know we are uh, an exploration sort of uh, you know organization that still has military ranks it's a little weird but yeah, we're, we're here for a, a new dynamic here in the future, but that's not really the case here. <laughs> so overall, really good film. Um, I enjoy it a lot. I think, like, re-watching it over and over, it's the most straightforward of the Star Trek movies. It's a very adventure we have to go here and fight this guy over this thing plot line. There's a, uh, an important MacGuffin, and everyone's motivations are clear, 
And we are basically focusing entirely <laughs> on that struggle. It's not a MacGuffin. It's plot plot integral. It's not a MacGuffin <laughs> if it's plot integral. Fair enough. <laughs> wait, wait a moment. Speaking of plot integrals, uh, what happened to Preston? Oh, yeah. He died really early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he gets shot. He blows up in the first fight. And they go, oh, good job, kid. Status your post. Uh, if I recall, uh, this early death was actually originally going to be Spock, uh, but uh, they decided to uh, to move that uh, later in. But they're like, we, we still need somebody to die around this point to sort of demonstrate that things are serious. So, Well, there uh, were several things. They knew they were going to kill off Spock. The original draft did have him dying really early in the movie. Mm -hmm. It got leaked, uh, fan outrage. They changed the script, but the place where Spock dies in the Kobayashi Maru test just at the beginning is a fake out for yeah. people who went into the movie knowing that Spock was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, Spock's already dead. Three minutes to the movie. Ugh. Which is kind of interesting watching it now because like no one who is a Star Trek fan has not heard of this. The minute yes. they say Kobayashi Maru, even if you haven't seen this movie, you're like, oh, this. Mm -hmm. It's become such a famous thing that even the first time you see this film, if you're a Star Trek fan at all, you know what's going on. <laughs> it's like, well, guess we gotta sit back and enjoy the ride. So it's definitely the most influential of the Star Trek movies, because it's the one that's the most well-known. Like, everyone knows the Spock death scene. Everyone knows the Kobayashi Maru. Everyone knows Khan specifically because of this movie. Yes, you know, you know Space Seed, you know, he's you know, perhaps memorable, but more for Star Trek fans. But this definitely escaped the, the, the fandom sort of uh, cul-de-sac there. And of course, Sakura Maltaban is like the only guy who could pull off this character yes <laughs> he is kind of amazing <laughs> like this is such a hammy cliche shakespeare quote spouting villain yes <laughs> yeah there is a uh, another uh you know uh, a quote sp a spouting villain later in the star trek movies but he's not as memorable still sort of an interesting character but not but not caught. Yeah, he's not great. I mean, I I see the comparison, and they were trying to do something similar, but comparing them directly, like Con there's no comparison. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole whole different like cons like on the moon compared to like the Dead Sea. So mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as heights here. So since it's such a straightforward movie, there's only really one central through line that they're doing uh, for their story beats, which is kind of the sort of debated in the movie idea of scientific progress being co-opted by the military for weaponry. I mean, yeah, uh, there is also the, the third line of, uh, you know, Kirk feeling old and things like that, but uh, that's more character development than sort of big ideas. And it's a bit odd because the whole movie is him like, oh, doing space stuff is for the young. We're getting too old for this. We need to like pass it on to the next generation. Uh -huh. <laughs> but <laughs> by the end, he's like, you know what? I feel great. All right, I'll... I'll We'll put off the next generation for a few more years then. <laughs> um, and I thought that this was an interesting one because they could they could have made an argument for the Genesis device being co-opted as a weapon. It does have some strengths when you view it as a military weapon of mass destruction because usually weapons of mass destruction, as we kind of said, they do a lot of damage. So yes. it could be a pretty good weapon to have a place where you used to have a bunch of bad guys, a bunch of enemies, and now you have farmland. Yeah, you, you might have lost the cities, but, you know, you could still use the planet. Yeah, but it's a little weird in the context of this. Like, fine, if you were making this exact plot line 
now, let's say with like our current level of technology and you're like, we have this thing that can, let's say, overwrite a continent instead of a planet because nobody's going to do planetary destruction with our level of technology. We can't leave. Yes. So, so it's like, well, we used it on Earth and now we're all dead. Yeah. Mm. But like you have this thing, it's it's magnitudes more destructive than anything that we have, even though its design is to be constructive. Like you can kind of make that that would be a lot more kind of potent as a metaphor for these things. Uh, by the time you hit the Star Trek level of technology, they have the technology to destroy a planet already. It takes a little bit more time. Yeah, like you can <laughs> do still this. still do it. This is not that much more powerful than the weapons they already have. Yeah, heck, you know, you, with the size of a, you know, a starship, you can just fill the thing with nukes. And there you can do the entire coverage of an entire planet. It's just a matter of deploying them. That's without even getting to the Star Trek, you know level weapons there i see kind of the through line that they're doing and it could be a kind of interesting one but it's it's so neutered because there's is an interesting debate that people keep having between like scientific pros progress and weaponry but mm -hmm. a lot of the places that it's happened historically like the thing that is probably being the most referenced in this would be something like the manhattan project where you got all of the most brilliant physicists in the United States together in one place to do groundbreaking, like full-on groundbreaking new era of physics level research with the explicit need to create a weapon of mass destruction. And of course, many of the scientists who worked on that project like talk about regretting it and talk a lot about how they didn't like being involved with that, even though it did bring in an entire new era of science that we are still benefiting from now. Might have been building a weapon, but there is, you know, the, the, uh, our understanding of nuclear processes and all that was massively expanded from this project. And so, you know, even previous generation, you know, you know, nuclear reactors, you know, would not be a thing without this project there. So now... You run into a problem because, of course, if we funded science with a military budget without the explicit demands to make weaponry, then you would have uh, done that anyway. Yes. Without making <laughs> a massively destructive weapon. Yeah, it'd be, you know, this is a theoretical weapon that no one's got around to doing quite yet, except for maybe South. I mean, you could have done like, hey, we've got this whole atom thing we just discovered. Can you use it to make unlimited free energy? Work on that. Okay. <laughs> Instead of, can you use it to blow things up? And then, you know, later we could make power plants with it. That could be neat, I guess. Side project. Uh, if we have to, I guess, you know. It would be nice to not rely on other countries for our, our, our uh, electric power, you know. Um, so I guess we can maybe do something with that. You had that, which, so you have that debate, which is like, in that case, it's, you're getting just funding. Mm -hmm. And it's also been, it's often used as sort of like the nationalistic idea of this is a calling for scientists to create usually offensive, but framed as defensive weaponry for their country that they're working in. Because, you know, that's a way that scientists can, comp can, uh, contribute to the national good by creating weapons because scientists can do this kind of thing uh there was another guy earlier guy uh that i remember hearing about for this kind of story way way uh earlier than this um called fritz haber um who was a haber. he was a uh, german scientist i think later working in switzerland and he invented a way to artificially produce nitrogen which uh is necessary for fertilizer and really like 
saved a bunch of people basically by being able to fertilize crops help a ton of um, like food shortages and stuff in the early 1900s. Some sort of uh, synthesized ammonia and uh, you know things like that. Yeah, um, he also invented mustard gas. Whoops, which was used as a chemical weapon during World War One. Uh, don't don't breathe mustard mustard gas, people. It's it's actually quite poisonous, nasty. And he thought of both of these things as contributing to the national good. So, uh, you know, fertilizer so we can feed people and mustard gas so we can have less people, I guess. Now, he was a certified dickhead who, like, drove his wife to suicide and did a bunch of other horrible things. So don't do that either. Yeah, he was a horrible, horrible person. But this is like a through line for scientists. We, we have this kind of dichotomy between trying to make things for the good of humanity and those things being weapons that you can make arguments for being for the good of humanity because they're defending your country or whatever. But you don't often get this kind of thing. This kind of thing is weird where you're saying we made this to be a farming tool, but someone co-opted it into using a weapon. Therefore, like, I don't know, military evil. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of a weird argument uh, in this particular context in the film. Um, it, I guess it could be made more straightforward, uh, but there's it, it kind of changed the focus of the film a lot, I guess. Yeah, my point here is like usually like, while you can have this debate and it's an interesting debate to have and it has a lot of historical through lines, most of the time if the military wants a scientist to make a weapon, they have them make a weapon. They don't have them make a terraforming device that they later turn into a weapon. Uh, it's, it's kind of a roundabout sort of uh, process here. This one actually absolves the scientists of a lot more culpability because in like the Manhattan Project, yeah, they were all doing nuclear physics. They were all just having fun physics times, except for when they were dying horribly and slowly of radiation poisoning, but that's another thing. Uh, and but they knew what they were doing there. This is our mission. This is they weren't inventing something that they thought was inane and peaceful. And then all of a sudden the military took it and went, ha ha, you've been making a weapon the whole time. And they go, well, darn, <laughs> we're not pulling an Ender's game here with the, the twist at the end there. Uh, it's like, oh, this was meant for evil the whole time. No, no, we actually knew it was. Fortunately, I'm not not finding a, a full a full list of the, some of the scientists here, but uh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> and I still just wonder, like, what in the world did did Starfleet do that made it credible for all the scientists to believe that they would first of all want and then use a planet destroying super weapon? I guess maybe there's some aspects to maybe the you know, the Federation uh, society and populace that isn't super well, uh, I guess, uh, expressed because we are so focused on the Enterprise and Starfleet at this point that maybe there is certain levels of distrust of Starfleet out there that, you know, it's like quite recently there's been conflicts with the Klingons. So maybe Starfleet is, you know, uh, you know, a imperialist force out there and it's just sort of a matter of time before they get what they need in order to, to destroy the Klingons fully and take over all their territories. And, you know, it's, you know, maybe there's a, a, an anti-conflict sort of, uh, 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 movement, uh, you know, about that because Starfleet isn't necessarily very good at PR is, you know, is sort of making this argument that, you know, Starfleet is looking for the next big thing in order to get an advantage over their enemies. And yeah. so use your imagination and it's like, Oh, 
this could be used for this, but we're going to be, you know, you know, because Starfleet is not the entirety of the Federation. We can still have this thing and we just need to make sure it doesn't fall into their hands sort of thing. Now, I still think that there could have been a much more interesting debate. They didn't really do a debate. We know. I mean, it's a weird one. If you look at it implicitly, it's another one of these please trust the military storylines. Because the scientists who have concerns about the military co-opting their equipment as weaponry are wrong. We know they're wrong. They're proven wrong. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's never a doubt in your mind the entire movie that Starfleet wants to use this as a weapon. Khan's pretty much the only one that wants to use it as a weapon. And even then, it's more of a, I want to use it as a lure first, and then as a screw you guys weapon at the very end it always makes me laugh a little bit and especially in american tv and movies this isn't what they were doing in this one to be clear but this is a very common storyline of oh no someone doubts the military they're not going to give us funding for our super whatever whatever weapon hope this attack doesn't happen oh the attack happened and the military was right and you should have given them funding shame on you people who doubted the military yeah it's one that crops up every once in a while, but it also kind of comes up at certain points in time more often than others. Mm. Uh, so I guess maybe in the historical context with this film, we could possibly, you know, you know, recognize that this is in a post-Vietnam sort of era. Uh, you know, the, the Cold War is still rolling on, but, uh, you know, people are kind of like, maybe, maybe we can be a little bit more skeptical here. And we haven't gotten the full pushback uh, against that sort of uh, uh, vibe yet. And we're still in that weird, ill-defined era where what in the world is Starfleet? Because it's definitely the military, but it's definitely not the military. And it's a some sort of UN-style peacekeeping organization that seems to mostly do political outreach and humanitarian work, but is also the most heavily armed force in the galaxy. It's uh, speaking very softly, but the stick is ridiculously huge. <laughs> I guess maybe to a certain degree, maybe Roddenberry was trying to make it be something unique, something new, something different, but just wasn't really pulling it off. No, Roddenberry was trying to make it something new, but what he was doing was taking a, what if we do peacekeepy, cool adventure stuff, but where humanity is good, actually, instead of the weird future stuff that we've been getting where everything's just a war. But I have to filter everything, as did everyone in this generation, through my experiences of living through and serving in World War II. Indeed. So uh, it's it, it attempts, but limited due to background and situation well it's a very interesting one if you look at it because there's there's a lot of reports even now of people who did military service saw the way that the military is run as basically a weird little socialist encampment in the middle kind of, of <laughs> america and come out of the military as devout socialists it's like, so uh, everyone just kind of cooperates and does their thing and everyone kind of benefits? Cool, let's keep doing that. What? Do you, yeah, like you, you're doing a job that everyone agrees is important. You get housing, food, childcare, healthcare, everything that you could possibly need to be able to take care of yourself and do your job to the best of your ability without having to worry about anything else. And you get paid. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you even get travel, uh, you know, for free, though you get kind of told where you're going, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Get to go see interesting places and meet interesting people who you get shot at by. Well, sometimes you, you help, you know, shoot people that they want you to shoot at, but you know, things happen. I'm not like, they be clear. I'm not trying to super romanticize the military or am I trying to, uh, 
defame it or make fun of it, but just looking at it politically, the military has everything that people say that they are fighting to keep us from doing. Yes. <laughs> Especially during the, the Cold War here. It's like, you know, it's like, we're going to fight everyone that is exactly like this part of our society here. Uh, with that part of our society. Um, don't think about it too hard, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> so it's a pretty easy thing to see that someone who had served in the military would come out of the military and go like, well, what if that was everything? And then make something like Star Trek. Indeed. So so, so why don't we got that, uh, Gepwin? Mm, politics? I was going to say because then it might end up also looking like uh, Starship Troopers, the movie. But, you know, but we're not covered that yet. <laughs> no, I haven't gotten to that yet. Though I want to. So, uh. Want to talk about fan service? Sure. So uh, this is kind of one of the more fan service movies in Star Trek. Oh, so uh, much. Yeah, because uh, it is so much of it does harken back to stuff from the series. Uh, yeah, the Botany Bay con being kind of the most obvious there. Uh, you know, some of the banter, you know, very much stuff you would expect to see back in the original series. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of surprising that despite all that, it still works as a movie that people well beyond Star Trek fell in love with. And I guess it kind of, you know, you know, draws a circle around maybe the big question of, you know, is fan service bad or good? I think the thing that this can really show you is the way that we think of movie going audiences, the, the standard industry knowledge that you have about setting up characters and all these other things that you're supposed to do in most styles of storytelling are not as important as you think they are mm -hmm. and can kind of hold back your story because yes. there's a version of this movie where they assume no one knows who Khan is and they spend 15 minutes expositioning his backstory but you don't need that he shows up he's a charismatic villain who's obsessed with the main character and wants to get revenge on him for a past wrong. Now, the fact that you can go back and see that past wrong in the TV series as a bonus, it makes it so you don't have to explain it. But if there had never actually been another time this character showed up and you set him up like this, it would still work fine. Indeed. You don't know everything Kirk did when he was captain of the Enterprise. This could have been one of the side adventures you never heard of. Heck, it could have been something from the animated series. <laughs> no one watched that, so, you know. It's the same way that um, the, the current run of Disney Marvel movies movies have stopped introducing characters in this case it's because you know there have been so many spider-man origin stories that everybody knows who this guy is something about radioactive spiders or genetic engineering or something and then suddenly super strong in spidey yeah. sense but generally does it really matter if you have a dude with superpowers show up in a superhero movie do you really care that he got his powers from a spider bite or meteor strike or whatever he shows up he does spider things yes. it's all you needed to know even though traditional movie making wisdom says that you need to have a giant exposition scene introducing the character indeed you know uh i, I think back to the uh, uh the uh tim burton uh, batman movie that there was a little bit of a sort of introductory sort of bit there, but still the movie starts off with Batman doing Batman things. And it's like, people know who Batman is, so that's fine. <laughs> and and this is even before the Marvel, you know, you know, era of the current day here. So I'm not saying this is something that you should always use, but there are certain times when you can. And Khan is a very archetypical villain. Yes. So use that. 
If you're using an archetype, you don't need to explain it. That's what archetypes are for. Yeah, people are used to something like this fitting in this role. So roll with it. You know, you can, you know, have the basics, you know, connecting it all together, you know, sort of scattered in there as needed. But you don't have to go into a full dramatic retelling of all those events there because it's just kind of a distraction from what the movie's actually trying to be about. And then, like, the core relationships between, like, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, they're written as old friends. They interact like old friends. They're directed really, really well in this movie. It's one of Shatner's best performances. Yes. And you read them as old friends, even if you hadn't watched the series and known that they'd been doing all this stuff together for 10 years. The early bit with the the birthday gifts and things like that sets all that up perfectly and it runs throughout the film and it feels natural and it's not forced in there. It's like, this is my friend McCoy and we're going to hang out together. No, it's like McCoy's here. We're talking about some stuff that's been on our minds recently. Also here, have some booze. In case you think that this is just like, well, of course you've seen the series. You know these characters from before. It's, it is, I will admit, it is fully impossible for me to be able to view this as if I didn't know who any of these people were. But you definitely can see how they handle these types of relationships and the way that they introduce them and write them into the stories by looking at the relationship between Kirk and Savick, because she is a fully new character who we've never seen before. But we already know everything that we need to know about her for the purposes of the movie with zero exposition. Yep, she is the new person. She is a cadet. She is learning as things go on. Uh, And a lot of that really kind of comes through in those first few minutes. She's very by the rules. She's technically proficient, but hasn't learned creativity yet. Mm -hmm. She's Spock's mentee like we we get all of this in the first 20 minutes of the movie without anyone sitting down and going this is savik she was born on vulcan 200 years ago or whatever and her parents were these people who died in a tragic space incident and inspired her to go on to join starfleet and all of that's superfluous and irrelevant to the plot so don't worry about it (laughs) i feel like it's it's not whether or not fan service is good. It's when you implement something like this well, it doesn't matter if it's fan service or not. Indeed. The way that they handled the character introduction and exposition in this movie is a masterclass in how to introduce it into an action movie really well. Would it work in a very toned down contemplative character drama? No. Do you know everything about these characters that you need to know for an action movie? Yes. <laughs> so I, I guess the important thing to know uh, when uh, you know, sort of gauging what level you should be here is to know what kind of project you're working on and to use that to help define the scope of details and how you introduce people and elements. Uh, not try to, I guess, have it both ways where you're trying to make it fit so that it could be this sort of film or story or whatever and this one and there's just a universal way to do it now that doesn't work so well what's kind of really really interesting is if you look at spock's role in the movie he shows up in the very beginning he's friends with kirk he basically doesn't do much for the rest of the movie he like gives up command he's talking to them when they're on the planet But, like, mostly he's not even on screen for a good 90% of the film. Yeah, he's kind of background for most of it, yeah. If you actually look at it, they did not, you know, quote-unquote earn his character death. He's barely a character in this movie. Mm -hmm. The way that they all acted around him the whole movie and the way that they react to his death at the end 
sells the entire thing. Yes. You know, he is, I guess in some ways, part of it is because he is Spock. He is a character that is very alien, very non-emotional. And if you are going to be having trouble uh, connecting to the audience because of that, you know, you, you, you basically build your, your uh, tableau of this character by how they are affecting everyone else around them. And yeah, so it, it very perfectly works for that. And that's mostly what I had to say about any of the things, except the one point that I can't fit in anywhere else. Okay. This is one of the first times we hear Vulcan spoken, and it sounds ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very silly language, but, you know, I guess it works. <laughs> Let's not go to Vulcan. It's a silly place. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh... I do appreciate they had that that sort of moment there, um, but it uh, yeah. As, as far as a language there, it is. Uh, I don't know even how to describe it really. <laughs> I'm pretty sure one of the words is buffick. Buffick. Let's get our buffick on, uh, Gapwin. <laughs> Which word was that? That's nobody. Nobody's perfect. So is but nobody or perfect or. <laughs> I don't um, know Vulcan syntax. Well, perfect would be a word that they might be using in certain contexts, but they would try to you know. Probably have it be so that you could say it easily. So probably nobody. <laughs> hmm. So uh, the other thing I, I guess I had uh, is uh, just a little bit of a, a game theory with a no-win situation. Yep. Because they can actually come in a number of uh, different sort of types, I guess. Uh, there's, you know, the ones where you do something and then there's so many un so, uh, unforeseen uh, consequences that minutes even years down the line you are totally destroyed because of that one decision uh and you were there's just no way to see beforehand that that's how things are going to turn out uh there's one called the, the zugs wang i think which is a uh, situation in chess where in order to continue the game you need to start losing uh, <laughs> where it's like any move you make it's it's a losing one so uh good luck uh, there's course you know situations where like you know the, the movie where it's where you're basically set up to lose as a sort of base you know a, a base assumption of the situation um there's also ones where you get various sort of external uh conflicting information where you know for either choice you know if both these things are true then you know that you're going to be you know less well off uh Alternatively, they could not be true, in which case you're also not well off, uh, no matter what you choose, because of uh, uh, you know other sort of uh, considerations here. It's it's, it's sort of a, a funky uh, logic diagram dealing. Um, but I guess the I guess the most historical one would be the Fyric uh, uh, Fyric vis uh, victory, where you've won the war, but you know, or you you know, but you've kind of also lost the war at the same time, because you know. We, uh, you know, Great Britain has uh, managed to defeat the, you know, you know, the Germans, the Axis, the Nazis, and all that, but they're not really a world power anymore. So uh, that sucks. So uh, no more British Empire, guys. Uh, let's pack it in. Uh, the U.S. and the uh, USSR are going to be taking over as far as the uh, the axes of power here. Um, go us, I guess. Said the British. Yeah. But uh, so there is, I guess, sort of a number of different contexts we could sort of, you know, examine with, you know, situations where there is no no, you know, correct way to win. But there is, I guess, a a certain amount of uh, coming to terms with these situations that we can kind of do, as well as to basically pull a, try to pull a Kirk. That if we are going to be, you know, set up to be in this sort of situation, then 
the thing to do is to make it so that we're not put into that situation in the first place. And so, you know, uh, I think I brought it up uh, previously when uh, talking about that damn trolley car, uh, uh, you know, situation. You know, my, my solution is blow up the trolley car, <laughs> <laughs> in effect, uh, so that you are not being trapped in the situation that's just ridiculous and somebody's going to get hurt in some fashion. Uh, and so you can, you know, you know, go beyond the rules of the of the game as they are being dictated to you in order to find a solution that is going to be you know, more workable and less overall, uh, uh, losing for, uh, everyone involved. So, uh, so Gapwin, uh, what's your big, uh, uh, no win situation? I don't know if I do fully believe in no win situations. It really depends, <laughs> especially on your thing on how they define winning. So you could basically just redefine winning because even your example of the British empire, the British empire being gone is pretty good for everyone except the British empire. Yes. <laughs> so I'd say that's actually a win myself. <laughs> that's why I was kind of like, uh, I'm kind of losing energy here. Cause I don't really want to support this idea here. Cause it did kind of suck. So I'm kind of glad it's gone. <laughs> so really it just sort of, uh, a lot of the stuff in game theory, especially when you're dealing with something like this is what does winning actually mean? <laughs> Which I, you know, I, I guess it, uh, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of a tabletop role-playing games. What what do you even mean as winning here? Well, I knew one guy who won D&D. He got the, like, art, big artifacty thing that they were trying to prevent from taking over the world, gave it to his dark patron, and then became a god. Well, then what? Well, then he won. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now, if I was running it, I would have made him DM of the next campaign. <laughs> All right, so you're now the game master. Uh, have fun. <laughs> so uh, I guess there is maybe a, a philosophical uh, question to be probed then is what is even winning? If we're going to be talking about situations where you cannot win, then what is winning? See, you run into a big problem with that when you're talking about militaristic things. True. We define we define it with city-states, so that doesn't make any sense, because city-states are made up of people. If you lose all the people, but you've defended the borders, did you win? I'm reminded of an episode of Red Dwarf, actually. It's been a while since I referenced Red Dwarf, but uh, the uh, there's a, an episode, uh, I forget the exact name of it, but they go to a, a planet entirely populated by uh, wax androids. So it's like wax mannequins, but they're androids. And they're of uh, various f uh, famous people. Um, and there's also one area which is filled with like Godzilla monsters. But <laughs> but uh, the famous people are divided between uh, the, quote, good guys of history and the, quote, bad guys of history. Um, though some of the good guys also kind of suck. Um, but uh, the, yeah, but they're in an endless conflict because, you know, all the people set up this place have long ago died. But they're androids, so they kind of live forever unless they're destroyed some way. So the crew shows up. And, uh, you know, the character Rimmer decides to lead the good guys, uh, faction to a victory over the bad guys. And, uh, his plan involves a daytime, uh, raid across a, le uh, a minefield, uh, to distract the bad guys so that Queen Victoria can show up and machine gun down Hitler and things like that. And it, it works, but everyone's dead at the end, except for our crew of, folks that uh you know popped up on this planet so yeah all the wax androids are dead but they're victorious so remember declares it a win and then they leave yeah in a very real way if everyone dies it could be considered a win because there's no more war right yeah 
<laughs> there's no more suffering. There's uh it's like if there's no more elephants, there's no more cruelty against elephants. <laughs> yeah. So uh it but you know, this kind of winning uh for these particular sort of criteria kind of leaves out a lot of stuff that maybe we want to keep around, like us, my friend Gepwin, myself, all my friends and family, all those cool people, you know? But what of the so, borders? What of the borders? <laughs> They're less important than my friends and family. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> That's just me being uh, being grim. You know, uh, as someone who uh, perhaps uh, plays too much grand strategy games, uh, I do recognize that to a certain degree, you know, I am playing a monster in those. And uh, it is... I am quite glad that I'm not actually playing with the lives of real people because I don't think I could sleep, uh, you know, sleep at night because of that. Um, but, you know, do you want me to tell you about my recent campaign as Pegu? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've already strayed a bit from... <laughs> but but I'm winning. <laughs> I'm going to have enough sailors at some point here. So, <laughs> so, so, so what is... So, Kepwin, what is winning to you then? I think that the whole winning-losing thing is a bit too binary, yes. if we're being honest. So you run into a problem when you're trying to break things down into this kind of very simple winning and losing mindset and that is one of the problems that you run into when you're talking about these kinds of things and theories because like game theory works because it's a game it's a very finalized set of rules and a very controlled unnatural scenario you are limiting the scope to such a degree that only certain things end up mattering but in the real world things are a little bit more messy more continuous there are things that we can value that uh, beyond a, a specific con you know success condition i think everything's just too messy <laughs> so uh, I, I guess i myself don't believe in the no wins uh, scenario uh in part because winning is very subjective that's all i got for that <laughs> <laughs> unless you want to talk about war games i think that we've probably done enough of the uh military history stuff at this point <laughs> no i mean the movie war games oh yeah that thing <laughs> we'll probably just get to that eventually <laughs> tic-tac-toe man <laughs> tic-tac-toe is a very no-win scenario yes <laughs> unless you're bad at it but anyway <laughs> so uh got anything else to talk about oh and we probably have strayed quite a bit so it's probably time for the galaxy's favorite game show everybody welcome to the galaxy's favorite game show we got all sorts of things to hand out today because we've been racking up a lot of prizes and um we also got a lot of phasers going on overhead so uh, we might need to duck occasionally but well besides all that sort of problem let's get ahead and get started here because uh, our uh, our contestants here have got a lot of prizes to be uh receiving and uh, lots of points to be uh, cashing out on our first one is the ahab prize of course because it goes to khan because he's Going to be all in on that whole revenge versus the that unstoppable guy, James T. Kirk. He might get himself killed in the process. Uh, actually, he does. Um, hmm. Anyway, what does he win, Gapwin? Khan wins a whole set of space harpoons. Like I think space harpoons are a very underutilized thing in Star Trek. And you don't get the ending where he's strapped to the hull of the Enterprise by his own harpoon cable because he just was that obsessed with this thing. He just... Turns into his own planet, which I guess, given the next movie, is kind of a spite planet, so... 
Planet Khan. I'm thinking of another Red Dwarf re uh, reference suddenly. I need to move on. Anyway, our second prize is the Light of Creation prize, which goes to the Doctor's Marcus for creating a device capable of countering the Death Star, but in the wrong franchise. What do they win, Gapwin? They win their own ultra-dimensional workshop space because, you know, they're creating planets. They're tailor-making. The galactic economy is going to collapse. We're all back there again. <laughs> Oddly enough, I've been uh, watching The Hitchhiker's Guide uh, from the BBC from uh, years back uh, recently. So, uh, yeah, they, I actually just watched that bit last night. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, I have that on DVD next to me as we speak, actually. Excellent. Go check it out, everybody. So, uh, Dr. Marcus is, uh, they're going to be getting their uh, themselves a hyperspace uh, dimensional uh, pocket with, you know, planets in it. Anywho, our uh, third one is to die is logical, which goes to Spock because the needs of the many versus the one and all that sort of stuff. What does he win, Gepwin? He just gets a giant statue that just says utilitarianism is king. Hmm. That's his entire philosophy. <laughs> well, uh, he's kind of a little on the dead side to, to really appreciate it. That's who you guild statues of. Yeah, so uh, it's quite fitting to have a statue there. Excellent. All right. Uh, moving on to the next prize, we got the Brain, brain Slug Prize, which goes to uh, Chekhov and Captain Tyrell for getting themselves a couple of these and then being kind of mind-controlled for a while. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? Well, Tyrell's vaporized, but Chekhov gets to lead a brain workout class because he was able to flex his mind strong enough to get rid of the bug that we kind of all forgot was supposed to make you crazy and then die. You know, uh, Chekhov is the iron will of Star Trek, apparently. Iron lobotomy. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess Captain Terrell, maybe he gets a, a, a dustbin, maybe? Hmm. Anyway, our final prize is the Whoops Prize, which goes to Kurt for not raising their shields when uh, it would have made any sense. And perhaps probably saved them a lot of trouble in the process. What does he win, Gepwin? Oh, Kirk's going to get everything that he deserves for this one next time. Well, then, I guess we got to tune in for that round, then, eh? That's all I got, Gapwood. Go ahead and take us away, uh, unless you want to, unless you want to try for yourself here and uh, try to get some, uh, some points and uh, to maybe win yourself. I don't need <laughs> points, and winning is an arbitrary concept, as we covered <laughs> earlier. So thanks, everyone, for joining us on the weird bit at the end of the show. The Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Star Trek 2. Yeah, good. pretty good. Now we run into the interesting problem of what do you do when a character leaves the series and you don't like that and you need him back? Yeah, and uh, like he's like, the actor's like, I, I kind of want to go back. I actually kind of have some fun with that one. This is a weird one where they, uh, they lose one Vulcan and gain one Vulcan. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like we could just go forward with Savic, but Christy Alley kind of wants to leave. Um, uh, I guess we'll replace her uh, actor as well, but, you know, uh, you can bring back Spock, maybe, just in a different, convoluted sort of way. Yeah, don't worry about it. That's fine. Wait, we, maybe we can get, a, like, an android replicate of him. Yeah, that's a way to go. Or, or maybe we could, uh, you know, kidnap him from the past, like when he was on his, uh, you know, uh, adventure on uh, Vulcan to do the whole purge all the logic stuff. Maybe he had, like, a vision and went to the future, 
and they're going to be hanging out with like a ghost version of him. That'd be kind of cool, right? Yeah. Or we could uh, slam five minutes of shooting into the last like two seconds of the movie to set up something for the sequel. I guess that might work too. We'll have to see. Hmm. So, what, what, so, so what's our next one here? <laughs> so, of course, the next time is Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And we're going to be having a uh, a guest on for this one. Yes. Say a a. a, a an author of uh, a lot of sci-fi, uh, Mary Lode. Uh She has, uh, you know, uh, written some stuff that's fairly Star Trek-esque uh, uh, called Trigalactic Trek. Uh, but uh, well, recently uh, it was uh, Entanglement Bound, I think it was, uh, the series she's been working on. Uh, it's uh, some good stuff there. So uh, we'll uh, be uh, introducing her uh, next time. Yeah, so you can join us next time. For Search for Spock, where we will be joined by someone who actually knows how to write sci-fi. Hey, uh, <laughs> I, I, what about me? Capwin? Capwin? Oh, I'm sad forever. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Mary helps us look for Spock. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>